Well, good morning, everyone. If you are a kid between kindergarten and fifth grade, you're welcome to go to your classes right now. And if you're not in that age range, you're welcome to stay. But if you do not have a Bible in front of you, let me encourage you to get a Bible. They're right outside the exit right here on a cart. We're going to be reading a long section this morning, and so you're going to want to look at a Bible. Uh, If you have it on your phone, that's fine, too. Um, a couple weeks ago, I found myself in the middle of one of those conversations. They were unpl- it was unplanned, yet it was one of those things where you start talking a little bit, and you get kind of on a different subject, on another subject, and sure enough, you lose track of time uh, just enjoying one another. I was dropping off a friend of mine at his car after we grabbed a late bite to eat right here in the Crossway parking lot uh, when I saw flashing lights right behind me. And I'm thinking, why in the world are we, we're we're in a parked car doing nothing, and here uh, was a police officer. So flashing lights, police officer comes up, and I see the badge, I see the, you've got the uniform on, it's like, okay, I need to see your IDs. Uh, And I'm thinking, we're not doing anything, we're just ducking. But so he asked for IDs, and of course, this guy's got authority, right? Like he's got the right things going for him in terms of showing that he's got authority. Again, the badge, the uniform, the car, the lights. And so we listen to him hand over our IDs, you know, he goes back to his car, and whatever police officers do in their car when they go back, I don't know, but you know, I'm sure he's doing something important, really important there, and then sure enough, like 10, 15 minutes later, he comes back, and he's like, okay, cool, I see that you're a pastor of this church, I'm like, okay, yep, yep, that's where we're here, and so he lets us go, and uh, it was all fine. Well, we listened to him because we knew that guy had authority. He had authority to take us in, he had authority to whatever, do whatever we wanted, really, um, but he had authority, and so we listened to him. Today, in our passage, we're going to look at Jesus making a stunning statement about his authority. And then he brings in all this evidence to back up what he's saying. Now, his authority is not like the police officer. His authority is far greater, far grander, far more serious. And what we'll be left with at the end is we're going to have to make a verdict on his authority. We, each of us in this room, have to make an opinion. What do we think of it? So we're in the book of John. John chapter 5, and let you turn there towards the end of your Bibles, and we're going to find ourselves in the middle of a very heated conversation. Jesus is talking to these uh, religious Jewish leaders, and these leaders are not happy with Jesus. See, Jesus had just healed a crippled man, and you think, "What's, what's to get upset about that? Well, he healed them on a day when you're not supposed to do any work. And these leaders are like, hey, you, you broke a rule, a religious rule, and we're upset at you. And so Jesus responds by saying, hey, I'm God, basically. And the ruler is like, whoa, 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 whoa. Who do you think you are to say something like that? There's only one God. And so they're really upset, and so Jesus responds to them in this passage If you have one of those Bibles where whenever Jesus talks, it's in red, you'll see our entire section almost is just Jesus talking. It's so long. It's good. It's what he's got to say. So pick it up on verse 18 and follow along with me. John 5, verses 18. I'm going to read all the way to the end of the chapter. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say... Well, hold on. Verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. 
So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these he will show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he wills. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And, ha and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that that testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I've come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for you wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus, he has an extended response here, and it's shocking. He doesn't spend any time talking about that rule that he technically broke the Sabbath. Instead, Jesus says he has authority to give life and to judge. Jesus has authority to give life and to judge. 
And then he follows up that bold statement by calling on three witnesses to support his claim. And so we'll look at both parts of Jesus' statement. First, his authority to give life and judge. That's in verses 19 to 30. And then second, we'll look at his witnesses. That's from verses 31 until the very end. So first, let's look at Jesus' authority. Jesus responds to the Jews by making this bold claim. I have authority to give life and to judge. So now the Jews he was conversing with, they knew that the only person in the whole world that could give life and could, and could judge is God himself. So when Jesus says he's got that kind of authority, they knew he was making himself equal with God. And now Jesus shows us that he's got this unique relationship with God. So for example, in verse 20, see, he says this, For the Father loves the Son. It's like a dad and his boy. They've got this really good, close relationship. But it's more than that. In verse 19, we see this, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. So it's not just that the Father loves the Son. The Father shows the Son what it's all about. He almost apprentices him. him. He shows him the ropes. And then he does one more thing. Look at verses 26 and verses 27. For as a father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment. God the Father gives his son authority to give life and to judge because of that relationship. So they love each other, shows them the ropes, and then he passes on responsibility, big responsibility, to give life and to judge. And sometimes we hear big statements, and they're so big and they're so wide, so beyond us, that we kind of quickly gloss over it. So for example, the sun is 93,000 miles away from earth. It's far. It's so far, so beyond us, that we can't even understand it. And we quickly kind of move on. Well, Jesus has authority to give life and to judge. It's a big deal. So instead of just glossing over it, we're going to slowly look at what that means. First, he has authority to give life. He's got authority to give life now. He's got authority to give life later. Now, we're not talking about physical life here, like when a baby is born. Talk about spiritual life. Look at verses 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. There's an odd thing in this passage. Somehow a dead person is hearing. See, the dead here is not physically dead. The dead is someone who's living and breathing and the lungs are pumping and hearts going, but they're spiritually dead. And what Jesus is saying is here, I am here to give you life now. He's tapping into a reality that we all experience. Every single one of us are spiritual. Now, I'm not, I'm not trying to say like we're all Christians or Muslims or Hindus. I'm not talking about religion here yet. We're all spiritual. We all believe that something or someone is going to give us the good life. We all believe that there's this good life out there. Uh, the, a life of meaning and purpose and satisfaction and comfort and joy. And we look to something or someone to give us that. And the question this morning is, what do you believe in to give you life? When you think of the good life, what comes to mind? 
And there's a lot of places we can go, but every single one of them, even good ones, if we look to them and we make them ultimate in our life, or we, if we make them number one in our lives, will end up leaving us spiritually dead. So I'm going to take you on a brief journey from middle school until the age of 80 and just highlight along the way all the different things that can kind of grab a hold of our attention and, and tell us that they can give us life but end up making us leave unsatisfied if we look to it ultimately. So in middle school or maybe in high school, you believe that the good life comes from hanging out with the cool in-group of friends. Or maybe you're an athlete or a musician or in drama and you think that if you can get to state or get first chair or get the starring role in the upcoming play, then life will be great. Or maybe it's grades. You're, you're a good student. You work hard. You want to get good grades. And you put all your energy and effort in get, getting good grades and a scholarship and awards. And you put all your energy there. And what you realize is, whether it's being cool in the crowd, whether it's getting to state, whether it's getting good grades, all these things are temporary. They don't quite give you that long-lasting sense of satisfaction because there's something else right after it. You get a good grade on that first test, but you realize you've got seven more to go. You make it to state one year, and you realize that you want to keep going after that. You make it the star role to play, but you realize that there's another play coming up after this one's over. And so you move on to the next season of life. Maybe you go to college or you go to some sort of training school, and you hope to prepare for your adult life. But while you're in school, you maybe have this newfound freedom and you realize, wow, there's a lot of other places I can look to to have the good life. Maybe it's drinking or drugs or, or finding a boyfriend or girlfriend or experimenting with some other thing. Or it's a grades again. You, you want to do well in school. You want to get a 4.0 so you can put it on your resume and get the best job ever. And so you work hard. You put your mind and energy to these things and one, over and over, what ends up happening is you realize that that really crazy fun night out on the weekend ends up making you feel miserable on Sunday morning. And that good grade that you got in one class, well, there's another class that's killing you. And over and over, you look to these things that give you life, and it's not enough. So you think, well, that's okay, because I'm almost done with school, and it's going to be that next phase that gives me life. And so you go, and you get your first job. And you start making more money than you ever thought was possible. You get paid for your time. You're getting paid whatever it is an hour or whatever salary it is. And you're thinking, this is great. And maybe you're decent at your job and you start getting good feedback and people are praising you for what you've done. And you're like, man, this is so satisfying. But then it's like, well, if I just had the next promotion, I'd love to have that title because it comes with all these other things and I get a better salary. And so you kind of work for that next thing. You go after it, and you get it, and you get that next promotion, you get a little bit more money, and you think, man, if I just had a little bit more, it's like it's never enough. And maybe on the side you think, well, if I could get attention, if people could think about me and, and give me feedback, that'd be great. So you, you go to social media, or you go to some other platform, and you start making fun comments, or insightful comments, or hilarious, hilarious videos, and, and people start commenting on it. And they give you likes, and they give you hearts, and they give you crazy emojis, and you feel good about yourself because finally someone's paying attention to me. But you realize that your funny post is only funny for about three minutes, and then someone else has posted something else above you, and your post gets buried in the archives of Facebook, and no one ever sees it again. And so it's not enough, so you got to get something else out there. you got to get something else out there. It's the grind. You want that attention. You can't live without it. 
but it doesn't give you life. It leaves you feeling stale. So you know what? You realize that work's not doing it, and school didn't do it, so you turn your sights on to family. And you say, well, if I could only find a spouse, if I could only get, have some kids, then my life could start. I'd have the good life. I'd have the life that I've always been waiting for. And you know what? Some of you, in God's providence, in God's kindness to you, he's, he's given you a spouse, and he's maybe even has given you some kids, and you're like, okay, this is great. It's a wonderful gift from God. We're so thankful. And we realize that this is, this is not something to take for granted. And yet you realize that your spouse and your kids, like they're not perfect. In fact, they're messed up. And in, in fact, like oftentimes, like your spouse, they may not think you're a rock star. They actually might think you have like areas to grow in and you annoy them in some ways. And there's some things that are deficient in your life. And you don't like hearing that, but you, you realize that that's kind of true. And you don't get that life that you wanted from them. You know, you wanted your wife or your husband, you, you wanted them to praise you and love you and adore you all the time, but they don't do that. And then your kids, you know, they're cute, right? And they're nice. And they smile and they do funny things and wonderful things, but they're also hyper. And they're, and they're sometimes really do foolish things. And they disobey. And so your kids, you, you just wonder, if I, you know what? If they just get out of this phase... You know, the terrible twos. When they're four, they'll be better. But all you parents who have four-year-olds, you know it's not that good at times when they're four. And it doesn't always necessarily get better. It just gets harder at times. You get what I'm saying? You wait for that next season. You wonder if it's going to come, and you realize it's not the next season when it comes to parenthood. There's challenges all over the place. So you set your sights further. You say, if I could get a bigger house, if I could drive a nicer car, if I could have a new toy, then I'd be happy. Or maybe it's this, I want to go on vacation. If we could have that camping trip, if we can get that cross-country road trip. No, no, it's that cruise in the European, somewhere, you see every single country, and you look forward to these things. And you go after it, you can't wait for it, you go, you go, you, you save your money, you go on this trip, it's exciting, it's fun. But you know what happens? The trip ends. And then you have to come back right to your normal life and you realize that thing I was looking to give me, that long-lasting joy, that long-lasting happiness, that long-lasting sense of purpose, it's not there. And so you keep looking. And for some of us, we can find our, our hope, our, our hope for life in a, a, a cause of some sort or a political party. And we, we invest so deeply into that. And, and again, these things aren't all bad at all, but we want them to give us something. But we, what we realize is even if our candidate gets elected, even if we pour ourselves out for this wonderful organization, what ends up happening is that the need still continues and our candidate doesn't deliver what he promised or she promised. And so we leave, we're left dissatisfied, so we look forward to the ultimate thing in life. That moment in life where we may not have to work anymore. Retirement. The day where all of our labors finally come to fruition. Where we can golf all day and eat whatever we want at all the restaurants. Where we can maybe get out of the cold and go down south somewhere. And we look forward to it. We spend years of our life looking forward to that day of comfort and joy and peace. 
But what ends up happening is you get there, and I'm telling you, there's some people here that are retired. You get there, and you realize your body doesn't function exactly the same way you were hoping it was going to function. You get to go down south, but you realize down south, all your friends and family, they're not necessarily there. They're back here. You get to golf like a four days straight, and you realize you're not that good at golf, and it's not that fun, and it doesn't give you the satisfaction that you've been after. You can only golf so much. You can only eat so much until it gets old, Right? All those things that we're craving for. So you're like, you know what? It's not those things I want. It's grandkids that I want. I want grandkids. And you look forward to grandkids. And maybe, maybe for some of you know what it feels like to be a grandparent. And you either see your grandkids too much or too little. Right? If you always saw them more, it'd be better. If you only didn't see them as much, it'd be better. Here's the thing. We go from the age of 13 to 80, looking all around us for things to give us life. We want meaning and purpose and belonging and significance and happiness. We look at things and dollar signs and items and clothing and whatever it is, and none of those things, none of those things give us the ultimate life that we've been longing for. We make them the number one priority in our lives. Look, don't get me wrong. A lot of these things are fine. I'm not trying to say they're bad. I'm not saying they're all bad. I'm saying when we make them ultimate, when we make them the things that we live for, when we hope that we get our comfort and our peace and our significance from them, that's when they leave us depressed, dissatisfied, disillusioned. In fact, they distract us from the one thing, namely the one person who says they can actually give us life. See, they leave us spiritually dead apart from Jesus. And Jesus says he can give us life now. He can satisfy the cravings of our tongue, not just for a second or for a year or for 10 years, for our entire lives. He comes in, he gives up his own life, which we find later in the book of John, so that we can have life, life right now. He comes to give us life now, but he also comes to give us life later. Take a look at verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Or look at verses 28 and 29. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. Jesus comes to give us life later. Part of the reason why the life that Jesus gives us now, right now when we're living here, is so good is because it can shoot right through death, right past it, into eternal life. Eternal life is the climactic fulfillment of all the good senses that we experience today in Jesus He promises a day where we'll be with him forever, where every tear and hurt and pain will be gone, where our aches and pains, our broken relationships, the empty promises that were never fulfilled, they'll be a thing of the past. Eternal life isn't just like one long church service necessarily. It's the truest, richest, fullest of lives that we could ever dream of. And Jesus has the authority to give that life. And... He's got the authority to judge. Jesus has authority to give life to all who believe, but he also has the authority to judge. Look at, this, uh, look at verse 24 one more time. We're going to focus in on the second half of it, but I'm going to read the whole thing. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. 
He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Or look at verses 29. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out in that last piece, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus is boldly claiming he has the final call to judge everyone. And the reality is, is that his judgment is straightforward. Those who believe in Jesus and trust him and follow him into eternal life. Those who do not believe him and do not have a relationship with him into eternal judgment. Initially, when we hear that Jesus is a judge, it can sound kind of stifling, not cool, even bad. We don't, we don't like that someone's a judge. It feels too black and white. But we all, at some point in our lives, want a good, fair, just judge. We want justice for atrocities that happen. We want justice for people who were wrongly accused and never got a fair trial. We want justice for a person who got away with a crime. We want justice for that person who's taking advantage, who had taken advantage of, of us, who hurt us in some deep way. We want justice. And sometimes that justice comes on earth in good form, and we receive it, and that's good. And other times we don't get that kind of justice that we wanted on earth, but, but the Bible says in a different passage that one day every single one of us will stand before God and there will be perfect justice because God is a good and perfect judge. Jesus in our passage says it. He's got authority to give life and he has authority to judge. This is a shocking and bold claim. On one hand, it makes sense that we can hear what Jesus has to say, we could understand it, but we can dismiss it and think, what in the world? That's crazy. Unless he's telling the truth. And so what Jesus does is he brings in three witnesses to back up what he's talking about. This is the second half. It starts in verse 31. We'll look through to the end. First, he brings up John the Baptist. Look at verses 33 to 35. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. The same religious rulers that are in this story, they had gone to John the Baptist earlier in the book of John in chapter 3, and they had asked John, hey, what are you up to, man? Who are you about? And John explains, hey, look, I'm just preparing the way for this other guy. His name's Jesus. He's the real deal. He's come from heaven. He's come to give life. And at that time in John chapter 3, the religious rulers were actually okay with it. They responded, and they're fine. And so Jesus says, look, John the Baptist has been talking about me. But he doesn't leave it there. Jesus calls in two more people to back up his claims. The next person he calls in is God the Father himself. Look at verses 32 and then verses 36. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. And then down to 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father, verse 37, who sent me has himself borne witness about me. The Father backs up Jesus' claims to authority. And he backs it up by simply allowing us to see Jesus' life. Jesus was... Jesus was turning water into wine. He was healing a crippled man. He was bringing people back from death. 
He's giving them life again. He's raising them from the dead. These are not things that any old, normal guy can do. Only someone who is from the Father, only someone who is God himself, can do these things. And these works should have been a clear sign to the Jewish leaders that were in that story that this guy was the real deal, that he wasn't faking it, that he wasn't lying. But it was almost like these Jewish religious leaders had their eyes covered and their ears covered. They, didn't, they couldn't see the Father. They couldn't see Jesus for what he was all about. And so Jesus brings in one last witness, a, a witness that these religious leaders could not have missed. It was right in front of them. Look at verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. See, the, the scriptures themselves, the Old Testament, it, it was a book that the religious leaders loved. They read it over and over. They loved the rules and all the regulations. They tried their hardest to follow it. But the entire scriptures, all the Old Testament, they bore witness about Jesus. The biggest story in the Old Testament, the one that spans from Genesis all the way to the end of it, is that there was to be a Savior to come. One who would come into our world, born an infant, one who would change everything, who would rescue us once and for all. But the, the religious rulers, though they loved the scriptures, missed it completely. They didn't see Jesus when they saw it, when he was standing right in front of them. But really now, after we've heard Jesus' bold claim that he's got the authority to give life and judge, and we've seen the three witnesses that he's brought in, John the Baptist, God the Father, and the scriptures themselves, there's a verdict that each of you are left with. Who do you say Jesus is? And what do you think about his claim right here, right now? There's a couple of ways that we can respond. We can just reject Jesus outright. That's the first way we can respond. We just reject him outright. For a lot of us, we hear that Jesus has authority, and, and we just feel like, that's, I don't want any of that. I don't want to judge over my life. I'll be my own judge. I'll be my own authority. I want to do what I want, when I want, when I want to do it. So, uh, yeah, Jesus, that's great and all, but he's off to the side. I'm going to live my own life whatever way I want. So he's outright reject Jesus. The second way we can respond to Jesus is by rejecting him by being religious. We can reject Jesus by being religious. We can find our hope and life and satisfaction, not in all maybe those things that I listed in the beginning from middle school to 80 years old, but in being religious, but it's completely void of Jesus See, religious people reject Jesus by thinking that if I follow the right rules or have the right spiritual background or history or if I'm good, God will be obligated to love me. Uh, most religious people would call themselves Christians or non-denominational or, or Baptist or something else, Catholic, whatever it is, but they have no relationship with Jesus. The Jews in this passage followed all the church rules. In fact, they cared more about the rules than they cared about Jesus. In our day, 
the, the religious rule followers are people that come to church every Sunday. They, they give money week in and week out. They read the Bible and they pray. Honestly, this is a category I could be in. I, could, I, could care, I have all the right answers. I could care so much about studying the Bible. I could care so much about doing all the right things in this religious stuff. But if I'm not careful, I could, it could be completely void of a relationship with Jesus himself. Or you can be religious by thinking your spiritual history or the family you grew up in or the culture you, you were around makes you good with God. Uh, you may have been confirmed. You may have gone to private school. Perhaps you maybe kind of pray here or there. Something comes up. If someone was to ask you, you'd say, of course I believe in God. Yes, I guess I kind of believe in a heaven and a hell. But functionally, you operate as if because of all my history, because of my background, I'm good with God. But you're void. There's no relationship with Jesus. There's no love for him. Or you can be religious by thinking that if you just do enough good things, God's going to be happy with you. So you work really hard, and you're kind to people, and you hold doors for old ladies, and you're a responsible citizen in your community, and you're a good neighbor that waves all the time, and you shovel the snow right when it comes out. You're a good person. And because you're good, you sense that God should look at your life, he should outweigh all the good stuff by the bad stuff, and say, yeah, you're good. I'm obligated to love you and follow you and, and accept you. See, religious people might look good on the outside, but like verse 42 says, they, they don't have the love of God in them. Or like verse 44 mentions, they might care more about what other people think than what God thinks. Overall, religious people look to get their life, that sense of joy and satisfaction and purpose from, from themselves, from either the rules that they follow or from their back, background or from the good stuff that they do. And they reject Jesus as the life giver. So we've covered two ways you can reject Jesus. One, just outright, and the second, by being religious. Well, the third way and the last way we can respond to Jesus is by receiving him. By receiving him and having a real relationship with Jesus. So some people, maybe some of you hear about Jesus' authority here to give life and to judge, and you believe him. You believe that you can trust him and you bank your life on him. We can adore God and you care more about what Jesus thinks than about anyone else. You know that you're loved by Jesus. You know he's come for you and you want, you want to respond. And you want to love him back. And so you, you go to church and you read the Bible and you pray and you do good in your community and you're kind to your neighbor and you look out for people who are marginalized. But you do all those things, not because you want to earn your way to God, but because you love God and you want to respond to him in thankfulness. It doesn't mean your life is always peachy and clean and good and perfect, but it does mean that you look to Jesus himself to give you true life. You look to him to give you purpose and belonging and goodness. See, the religious person and the person who's got a real relationship with Jesus actually might look pretty similar on the outside. They may do similar things, but the reason they do them is completely different. The religious person does it to earn their way to God, to make them feel kind of satisfied, and to hopefully feel like you've done enough to make it with him forever. The one who's got a relationship with Jesus realizes that Jesus has already done it all for you. He's come into your shoes, he's walked in your way, and he's got the authority to give you life. And because he's given you life, because you believe in him, you respond out of gratitude 
out of desire to love him. And you do all these things because you love him and because he's loved you first. So, what is your verdict on Jesus' authority? You have to make an opinion. Is Jesus just this lying or crazy guy that we should ignore or put aside? Or is he the real deal? Is he Jesus, the one who can give you true life, the one who can really judge? Jesus makes some huge claims in our passage today. He says he's got the authority to give life and to judge, and he backs it all up by bringing in some of these witnesses. And later on, in the book of John, he backs it all up in the most ultimate of ways. Though Jesus has authority to give life, he actually lays aside his authority and gives up his own life. Though Jesus has the authority to judge, he himself is judged by God, and he takes on all the wrath and all the punishment that we deserve for our sin, for our shame, for our brokenness on himself. The giver of life and the judge ends up giving up his own life and being judged himself. Why would he do that? He does it so that people like you and me, with all our colored backgrounds and history, with all our regrets and our shame, with all of what we've done and what we've experienced, could be freed from judgment and have true life with him. True life now and forever. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we recognize that you are God and that you've given authority to Jesus to give life and to judge. And, and we acknowledge, God, that uh, we're not sure if we see you the right way all the time. And so, God, I, I pray for the folks in this room as we, we all kind of collectively consider where we stand with you, what our verdict is on your claims of authority. We ask, God, that you would make it clear in our minds and in our hearts. Would you show us, like you did in this, in this passage today, the truth? Help us to respond to you, God, as, as you deserve. God, we, we recognize that there's a million things in our lives that we're going to be stepping right back into that we look to to give us life, that we can be tempted to follow after in hopes of giving us what actually never will satisfy. And so, God, I pray that we would wait for you, that we would wait for your work, that we would wait to receive from you, even when it's hard, God. And we pray, please, that you would allow us to be people, even in the challenge, to say we trust you. We trust you to give us life, even the suffering. We trust you to give us life, even in the waiting. We trust you to give us life, even in the longing. And we ask, God, that you would come through, and we know that you will. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.